Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, wonderful friends. I'm so happy to see you. Thank you for being here on this beautiful, beautiful Tuesday. Uh, where we can learn some Torah together, debate number 39 of hierarchy versus populism. Just to remind you of the most basic, simple definition of populism, a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups, okay? So friends, let's start with a little poll together to see where, how you think about dimensions of populism. What should our relationship to authorities or to the elite, so to speak, be? One, we should always respect authorities. Number two, we should rarely challenge, but be prepared when our motives are possible, are positive. Number three, we should rarely submit to authorities and generally take a very suspicious questioning approach. Or lastly, we should always challenge authorities. Okay, friends, let's make our vote here. Okay, nobody says we should always respect authorities, but 82% lean that direction, saying we should rarely challenge, but when we do, we should be really clear on our motives. 0% says we should take a highly challenging approach, on and be suspicious. And 18% go further say we should always challenge authorities. Okay, very interesting. Now, this doesn't fall out in a left or right. There are left-wing populists, there are right-wing populists. The notion of trusting or distrusting authorities transcends partisanship. Here we go. Straight from the Torah, populism emerges. Moshe is working hard to lead the people, but it is then when he has met with a populist uprising from Korach and his friends. Pirkei Avot reminds us of the value of machloket, of debate, but at the same time cautions us to be sure that our arguments are made with good intentions, like those of Hillel and Shammai, L'shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven, and they are not self-serving. Friends, that's a very high bar. I wonder what psychological tools you have in place to check if you are going to challenge that your motives are actually pure and not self-interested. 
The example given of the latter is Korach. And what debate was not for the sake of heaven? Such was the debate of Korach and his followers. So our first debate in the debate series was Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai are the example in Pirkei Avot of Machloket Leshem Shemayim, debates for the sake of heaven. They were fighting for truth, fighting for virtue. They were all in for the good. What is the example in Pirkei Avot of a Machloket Leshem Shemayim? That is Korach and his followers. They are about power. They believe in challenging authority for the sake of challenging authority, not because there's a higher truth being that they are striving for. Professor Yeshayahu Leibovitz, a really radical chemist, he was a scientist turned into biblical commentator and political commentator in Israel, teaches about the debate of who is holy between Moshe and Korach. Because Korach's debate, Korach's claim sounds great, right? He's like, Moshe, who are you? Why should we have one leader up front? What makes you, what makes you so great? We, I'm a man of the people. I want everyone to have access to God, not just you. Sounds great, right? I'm on board, right? So what's the problem? So here's Leibovitz. The first concept of holiness is not a fact, but a goal. Oh, in the second concept, holiness is something granted to us. We are holy. Okay, got that so far? So there's this understanding of implicit or inherent holiness. Think of Tselem Elohim, that we are created in the image of God. Think of a Torah scroll. But then there's this other concept of holiness that is not factual or inherent, but is aspirational. He continues, the difference between the two is most profound. On the one hand, holiness is expressed as the most lofty state that can be attained through man's decisions on religious faith. He is required to demand this goal of himself. On the other hand, we have holiness in which a person absolves himself of responsibility of the mission imposed upon him and of the obligation to exert himself. He is smugly sure that he is already holy. And we've been aware of this all at all times, that even the most contemptible person can boast that he is a member of a holy nation. But one should note without distorting the fact that in the long history of Judaism, these two concepts of holiness have existed side by side. Friends, let's unpack this. Leibovitz, Leibovitz has something very big going on. Leibovitz is a critic of the land of Israel being inherently holy, right? Oh, most people say Israel, oh, the holy land. This land is holy. Leibovitz says, ah, oh, holiness is relational, not inherent. If we act justly on the land of Israel, Israel is holy. If we don't act justly, we have, we have, we have profaned we have profaned the land. We have desanctified the land. So too, it's like it's like it's like it's like a relationship. If we are honest with our partner and we are kind to our partner, this is a holy union. If we are disloyal, dishonest, abusive, this is not a holy union at all. Yes, there may still be a marriage or a a relationship that's intact, but we have profaned. We have we have uh, uh, um, we have destroyed the sanctity of that space. So. For Leibovitz, he is interested in this notion of holiness not being inherent, but being relational, or in our ethical relationship, our spiritual relationship, rather than essential. And he says, this also plays out with the Jews. Someone might say, I'm awesome, I'm a Jew. What's better than being a Jew? He goes, uh-uh, being a Jew doesn't make you holy. You need to be 
a righteous person, you need to, you need to strive for, uh, to achieve certain goals to be holy. Don't sit back and say um, that because of my identity status, I am necessarily holy. Now, friends, in the self-help lit literature, um, in the self-help literature, um, people are often attracted to one of the, or the other of these two approaches. Sometimes they get mixed up. One approach sounds like this. You can be great. You can manifest your destiny. You can achieve your dreams. Go chase your dreams. You can lose 50 pounds. You can make a million dollars. You can be beautiful and attractive and popular, right? You got to work for it. You got to roll up your sleeves and work to make your dreams come true. That's one self-help literature. You can become great. The other self-help literature sounds like this. You are great. You are perfect. You need to strip away all these anxieties and, and, and notions of imperfection that you think about yourself, right? Your insecurities, because you already are great and perfect, right? Some of the self-help literature, when, when they think they're, they're writing for an audience that's not so attuned, will mix and match those. But generally, they take one or the other. Either greatness is something to strive for, or greatness is something you already are. So too, religious groups take one or the other. Some religious groups are highly aspirational. Work on yourself. Put yourself through spiritual boot camp. Put yourself through intellectual workshops. You can become something amazing. The other side says, no, no, love yourself. You are beautiful and perfect. You don't need to change anything about yourself. Maybe you'll think about which side you're attracted to of those two. I'm not, I'm not taking a, a stand. In any case, Leibovitz here is saying there's two dimensions of holiness. One, in fact, is inherent, right? There is holiness, which is um, inevitable, inherent, necessary, essential. And then there's another part that is a goal. That is a goal. So, so Korach, what does Korach say to Moshe Rabbeinu? What does he say to Moses? He says, who makes you so holy? We're all holy. That sounds democratic and beautiful, right? Why should Moses be the leader of the Jewish people? Let us be a democracy. Let us all lead. We are all naturally holy. And Moshe and God are like, uh-uh, like, yes, everyone is holy. Everyone is special. Everyone is important. And there's a thing called virtue. And someone who was on a level of virtue that much higher, right, is going to have direct access. They're going to be more spiritually attuned. They're going to be more wise. They're going to have access to reality beyond other people. And those experts are people we should look to even while we have a democratic ethos. So we want to hold on to both. We want to be, have a democratic ethos where we value everyone, but we don't want to diminish the expertise of experts, the, um, the, the, the holiness of those who have committed their lives to um, higher endeavors. Can we hold both? And today we see people pulled in one direction or the other. Forget virtue, forget expertise, forget knowledge. It's all about the people. And others who say, forget the people, we just got to do what's right, whether the people are with us or not with us. Here comes populism. It seems that Korach's argument is quite fair. Hey, why are you calling all the shots, Moshe? Aren't all the people holy? But we must remember that holiness is something to work for and strive for, not purely innate. In fact, that would be Judeocentric. We could even make, uh, worse than Judeocentric. That would be um, uh, um, a form of essentialist, we might even call racism, 
if we felt Jews were essentially holy than other human beings, to say, I'm merely a Jew, I'm holier. Actually, holiness is something we achieve rather than being, being innate. Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, the chief rabbi of Efrat, who I studied with for num a number of years when I lived in a caravan on the hilltop, he took a similar approach. He says, both Moses and Korach desired the people to be the holy people. But for Moses, this was the goal. In order to reach it, generation after generation has to choose again and again between the way of God and the wrong paths of their own hearts. For Korach, the people were already holy. So why should there be further need for choice? Their dispute was between two approaches to faith and to life. The conflict between Moses and Korach reflects a tug of war within the human spirit. Korach denies the importance of the laws. He says, who needs this system of do's and don'ts? You shalls and you shall nots. We're holy already. Certainly this perspective was attractive to every Israelite who wanted to be left alone. Who wants to be told what to do and what not to do? So we almost had a populist uprising in my house last night. The children, it was bedtime. I said, guys, it's time. It's time to brush your teeth. You got to go potty. You got you to gotta get, get your stuff together. Oh, populist uprising. And the five-year-old was leading it. My sweet little girl. <laughs> right? And so she says, it, it, it occurred to her for the first time, who, who made you the boss? Abba, who put you in charge of this house? <laughs> and, I, I, you know, as a good organizer and activist, I wanted to nurture the spirit of uprising. I wanted to nurture um, their, their no justice, no peace. Um, if they don't stay up later, they will not go to bed easily or will not wash their hands with soap or will only do their first toothpaste and not the second. And so they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like we're all in this family together. You're holy, I'm holy. Like who says you determine 8.30 is the bedtime? Not me at nine o'clock, you know? And so it's interesting. Like I have more expertise on the sleep cycles and how much sleep they will need so that they will get out of bed and have a productive day. Um, but they have the power of masses. They have the power of the masses in the house. Who will ultimately call the shots on bedtime? And so Rabbi Riskin offers over here, he says, Korach, Korach has an interesting idea here. He says, um, what do we need all these laws you're giving us, right? What do we need all this, all these rules? Like we are the people, let us follow our own hearts, right? Let us follow our own intuitions and inclinations. Right? This is an interesting moment in, in Judaic history. But wait, doesn't Judaism encourage dissent and pushback? Didn't we already talk about over and over the whole fundamental orientation of the 40 greatest debates is that Jews are debaters. Jews argue, Jews fight, Jews, Jews go for the jugular. I mean, but in a, in a nice way, in a loving way, then we kiss after that, right? Because we are a people wrestling with truth and with God and wrestling for justice. So what do you mean? We're supposed to just give in to God, give in to Moshe, right? Isn't Korach great that he's willing to speak truth to power, right? This seems to not, uh, this seems to not jive. Why would we squash debate? In fact, the debates of Hillel and Shammai quoted above are referred to as being Lashem Shemayim for the sake of heaven. And the entire corpus of the Talmud is written in a give and take, a debate style with Talmudic rabbis, often sometimes heatedly so, disagreeing with one another. This pattern continued through the period of the Rishonim, the medieval commentary, and beyond, and continues to this day.
Rabbi Bradley Artson, an LA-based conservative rabbi who we've had at VBM, raises this question based on the Korach episode. He says, Korach's challenge strikes to the heart of democratic values. If all people are created equal, then why should any one person have any authority over any other? Why should one person ever have access to power, wealth, or prestige in a way that another person does not? Each person has intrinsic worth. All people have equal value. Shouldn't we be anarchists? Once we have government, we have hierarchy. And why should anyone rule over anyone else? Rabbi Harold Schulweis, a Holocaust survivor and an LA-based conservative rabbi of the late 20th century wrote, the lesson of Korach then is not that dissent must be squashed, but that the character of the dissent and its motivations must be sincere. Korach's dissent was manipulative and his intent self-serving. Where the dissent is moral, honest, and without ulterior motive, it is the will of God. Oh, this poses an interesting challenge for us. We might automatically admire the street fighter. We might automatically love the protester chaining herself to the fence, who is the, the one who is taking their, their, um, their, their fast, the one who is engaged in their civil disobedience, the one who disrupts the, le the, the, the lecture to point out the hypocrisies. We might all automatically love that speak, the one who speaks truth to power. And yet, Rabbi Schulweis reminds us, we are all about debate, but the intent in that debate is the intent manipulative? Is it someone gain their own power? They want to revolt, so they will be king. They are, if you've seen Macbeth with Denzel Washington, um, you're back in touch with Macbeth. Is it merely the Macbeth who wants his own power? He's not so righteous to kill the king. And then, um, and then the, the overthrowing of Macbeth, right? Who ultimately, right? What are all these revolutions about anyways? Is it really about just claiming power for oneself? So Shuois reminds us, yes, of course we want debate. Of course we want pushback. And yet we have to be really smart to be able to detect different levels of, of honesty of what is actually being pushed for and what intent is involved. Now, we are not the knowers of another's heart. How am I supposed to know another's intent? I don't want to judge the other. They seem like they're striving for something righteous. How can I judge their intent? As Jews... We must embrace debate, and even among those we disagree most stridently with, we have to embrace the debate. However, when we see someone is manipulative and narcissistic, we must caution ourselves. We also must caution ourselves towards humility to know our place and role. Just because we have a voice doesn't mean we should challenge unnecessarily those who are experts and know far more than us. Just because I read a blog about medicine doesn't mean I go protest the medical establishment based upon this blog post I read. One Midrash teaches, four types of people are called wicked. They are called Rashayim, the one who stretches out his hand against his fellow to strike him. That's obvious, the violent person. The one who borrows and does not repay. They might claim, oh, I'm poor. How dare you be a shark? a predator, a lone, a lone predator. But actually, I knew when I borrowed, I wasn't gonna repay. I knew I didn't have the income to repay this. That breaks all societal trust, the one who borrows and doesn't pay back their debt. Number three, one who is arrogant and is not ashamed in the presence of someone greater than themselves. And number four, one who is argumentative. Okay, so the first one is obvious. 
The wicked person is the violent one, the person um, um, who strives to physically hurt others. The second is obviously wicked as well, although less obvious, because this is not someone who intends to pay back their, their debt and then falls into poverty unexpectedly and thus can't pay their mortgage or can't pay their car lease or can't pay this, this loan they got to get out of credit card debt or medical debt, right? This is someone who is like, I just wanna borrow a whole bunch of money I know I can't repay or have a very high risk at repaying and actually breaks the whole system of debt. Number three, the one who is so arrogant that they are willing to challenge anyone because they believe that it is the challenge itself which is valuable and similarly tied, number four, the one who is argumentative, the one who doesn't even know the word peace, doesn't even understand the notion of consent or consensus, the notion of bridge building or conversation or dialogue, the one who argues for argument's sake, we know how destructive that can be to relationships. The one who says, oh, I'm just playing devil's advocate, constantly the devil's advocate, right? And so that is called wicked because this is these are individuals who fundamentally break down community, they break down family, they break down economic systems, they break down, they break down um, societal order in many ways. So we should be humble before those greater than ourselves, the Midrash teaches. Are we even willing to say that? That, hey, I am great and there's people greater than me. We cannot flippantly shut down people of great virtue and great wisdom, right, so quickly. Today, populism is on the rise in various forms and we have to be aware of what's happening. Here's how Rabbi Jonathan Sachs roots this phenomenon back again in the Korach story. Korach was a populist, one of the first in recorded history. And populism has reemerged in the West as it did in the 1930s, posing great danger to the future of freedom. What links populism on the one hand and the phenomenon of wokeness discussed by Barack Obama on the other is that they are both binary. They both are extreme. Both divide the world into the good and evil, the black and white with no shades of gray. Both see themselves as the oppressed and the opponents as the oppressors. They see no saving grace on the other side. Okay, so for Sachs, he is rooting this in the broader um, uh, system of political alienation. He said, on white hand, one hand, we see the reemergence of far-right populism around the globe. They are trying to speak to the masses and say, oh, you masses are missing out. Those elite rich people, they're all making it and you're all missing out. You should jump on, on my train and that train is also gonna be built on xenophobia. It's gonna be built not only on a distrust of the elite, but on a distrust of the outsider because you, the ones who belong here, are being robbed. You white, you, you white middle Americans, you've been robbed by all these people of color, by all these immigrants and refugees. You are being robbed of what you deserve, your American dream, right? And this is rising around the world. And this is a binary that he points to here um, in this phenomenon that emerges in populism of the elite and of the robbers and of those who are truly deserving of achieving this nationalism. And on the other hand, the, those who claim there's the woke and the unwoke, those who really get the absolute truth on justice and have total clarity, and those who, who do not have total clarity and thus are complicit in, a, in fundamental systems of injustice. He says that binary way of thinking 
is destroying society. He continues here. These are classic populist claims. First implies Korach, the establishment represented by Moses and Aaron is corrupt. Moses has been guilty of nepotism in appointing his own brother as high priest. He says, oh, I know you're guilty. You made your own brother a leader. You made your own brother the high priest. You must be all about yourself. He has kept the leadership roles within his immediate family instead of sharing them out more widely. Second, Korach presents himself as the people's champion. The whole community, he says, is holy. There's nothing special about you, Moses and Aaron. We have all seen God's miracles and heard his voice. We all helped build the sanctuary. Korach is posing as the Democrat so that he can become the autocrat. And how often does this happen, friends? That ultimately, the one who, once again, who is launching the revolution is merely seeking their own power. Sachs continues, Nachmanides, the Rambam, not to be mistaken with Maimonides, the Rambam, was undoubtedly correct when he says that such a challenge to Moshe's leadership would have been impossible at an earlier point. Only in the aftermath of the episode of the spies, when the people realized that they would not see the promised land in their lifetime, could disconnect be stirred by Korach and his assorted fellow travelers. They felt they had nothing to lose. Populism is the politics of disappointment, resentment, and fear. So this point that Sachs picks up on in Nachmanides is very important. When you have a lot to lose, you're less likely to join the populist train. You still have hope. You still have opportunity. When you are full of despair, you may be um, and feel you have little to lose. You may join the politics of fear, the politics of resentment, the politics of disappointment, and as such are willing to crash and burn the establishment because the, the establishment has failed you. Korach was a populist, something dangerously on the rise around the globe today, wherein outsiders on whatever end of the political spectrum just hate the establishment simply because it is the establishment and want to take over doing anything and stopping at nothing to achieve that end. It sounds righteous, but the truth is it's only righteous if they're fighting for something against something actually evil and not just something that's established. Sachs dedicated so much of his last book before he passed toward critiquing populism. And then I'm gonna conclude here towards our conversation thread. Populist politics involves magical thinking. The belief that a strong leader with contempt for the democratic process, divisive rhetoric, relaxed about the truth or otherwise of his own or her own utterances, ignoring the conventions of normal politics, appealing directly to the people, blaming the state of the nation on some subgroup of the nation, or perhaps on neighboring nations and peoples, and speaking not to the better angels of our nature, but to the worst, can restore a nation's former greatness. That is magical thinking. Our nation be can become great again if we merely throw these other groups under the bus who are making it ungreat. So he's given us here a few tests that we can use to determine what is legitimate political 
um, dissent versus what falls into dangerous um, populism. Today, friend, friends, as Western liberals, we by and large embrace egalitarianism and democracy as part of, of the liberal tra uh, tradition of Western society. All people are, are equal and should have equal access. But embracing equality doesn't mean that we have to reject hierarchy or, or reject the respect for greatness or become populists working to derail hierarchy and authority. There are times for revolution in history and there are times for evolution. There are times for critique and debate and there are times for silence. Korach had some valid points. He is so close to getting it right but ultimately gets it all wrong. We should learn from that mistake in our own times of polarization and divisiveness. Okay, friends, debate number 39, Korach versus Moshe, populism versus hierarchy. I would love to hear some of your thoughts on this issue. What a time to have this. I mean, first of all, we've been suffering with all the misinformation and, and all the protests against public health measures for COVID. You had the years of Trump and the January 6th insurrection. We've got right now, I guess it's in your news. Um, Lauren, our city Lauren, this is the first week where we, where you don't have the upper hand over us as a Canadian. Usually all you American society is broken in Canada. We're, this is the first week that it's y'all who are a mess. I am so embarrassed. Um, <laughs> although a lot of the money is coming from far right groups in the US, but you know, if you, I mean, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking that this populist movement has invaded a city. Our prime minister had to um, call out emergency regulations. We don't know what's gonna happen, but this has been three weeks of complete suffering for people in Ottawa. And I guess you know about also, um, also closing the, the border to the US. But yeah, populism is terrifying. Be it Trumpism or this far right movement in Canada now, it's it's really really terrifying, and I don't know how we protect ourselves out about it. But you know, I'm really dismayed and and very frightened about what's going on. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for weighing in, it, friends. It is so easy to fall into this way of thinking that the rich are corrupt, the elites have a whole conspiracy. And we, none of us, us people of the masses, have any clue what's really going on in the world because we're hidden the truth around real public health, around real political dynamics, around real economic factors. And thus we should be distrusting of anything that is top down, of anything that is established. And that is what is indeed is, um, is playing out, a fundamental distrust towards everyone and everything. Hi, Rav, uh, Rav Dove Lerner. Yes. <laughs> I see you're unmuted. Were you going to jump in? I I was. One of the things that bothered me about the, the bridge, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I go as Dove. I'm, I'm retired. You don't have to be so respectful. I'm just grateful to you. The finding of so many guns at the bridge, the Royal Canadian Mounties found them. And that's equally a concern from the standpoint of populism because it, it represents, I will take my power, I will magnify my power, 
I may not have money, but I have a gun. And in this United States, we have three to five guns per person. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And for what purpose? We don't trust them. You never know. <laughs> that I think is, is as much a weakening of a country as when I was growing up here and we were taught to deal with a nuclear bomb by getting under our desks, our wooden desks <laughs> in a schoolroom and saying, you know, stick your head between your legs and then you kiss your tushy goodbye. <laughs> I mean, so Rabbi Lerner, yeah, thank you for that. And, by, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, I appreciate your humility, but if you spend decades serving the Jewish people as a rabbi, in my view, when you're retired, you don't lose your rabbi title. But thank you for your, your, your humility. And but your I'm coming to you to learn. <laughs> thank you. But you're, you're, you're very right to point to guns um, because fundamental to gun ideology. And here, I'm not critiquing it. If, if, if one of you has a, you know, a, a pistol at home you know, that, that, that makes things feel safe or whatever the case is, we can debate whether having a, a single gun in the home is productive or not. But I'm talking about gun culture where people want to have dozens of guns, um, you know, uh, in order to um, be a, a, out of a populist belief that we cannot trust the establishment to protect us. We cannot trust the establishment to maintain order. We will need to be prepared to take our guns and maintain order in society. That gun culture is, is exactly rooted in this populism we're talking about. Can, I, can yes. I jump in just a little bit further? Yes, please. There was an announcement today, I think the Washington Post, that the Sandy Hook parent yeah. Yeah. got $73 million successfully against Remington Right. for producing a rifle that the only way that rifle can be cleared for hunting is if you arm the deer. <laughs> you don't, you don't need. So they now may have found a way to approach these lawsuits that may succeed. And I say that as someone who was a member of a rifle team, a member of a pistol team, ROTC, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, your street cred just went up big. You're, hey, you're, no, you're, no, a no. Of, you're a member of a rifle team and you're still arguing for gun control. Hold on, hold on. I'll, this is for fun. And I apologize for the, the length. I was also, I am also the only rabbi in North America to have been a national champion in an Olympic sport. Wow. Archery. Really? <laughs> wow. That is... That, you, you, that, that's like, yeah, that, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. Wow. But target practice, which yeah. I taught at Camp Ramah for yeah. years in archery, yeah. is, is the opposite of shooting to kill. Right. right. That is not gun culture. Gun, using this as a sport, as a skill, um, is very, very different than the gun culture. So thank you for sharing that. And I saw that news today also. And if I read correctly, it was the first time there's, yes. there has been um, uh, a gun manufacturer held accountable in this kind of way in this settlement. So it's a, it's a, it's a, big, uh, it's a big historical moment. Oh, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm switching to the car for a second. Yes, Matthew and then Shipley. Yeah. Okay, one comment I was going to make going back about the gun issue, but the irrationality of I know better was I was with a young dentist this morning 
who mentioned that some of their employees, quote, refuse to wear masks, which is really weird and insane because if we don't trust with COVID and the owner of the practice said, well, dentists always wear masks, this is different. And he terminated them, you know, that their irrational thought went to beyond what they were previously doing. And it's this belief that you just can't trust anyone. And it's really a scary view that I know the truth and I can't trust anyone else. So thank you for that. Um, you know, I, 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 think, I think another area we see this in is um, in religion. A, that that um, yeah um, that people have read of corruption of some you know um, take the Catholic Church because it's such an easy example actually let me tell you about a crazy case you may have seen in the New York Times yesterday did you hear about the Phoenix based um, Catholic priest who resigned because he performed ten, like something like twenty thousand baptisms with the wrong word. This is a this is a stunning article. It's so sad. Instead of starting his baptism with the word I, he used the word we accidentally for his, like decades of his of his life as a Catholic priest. And they said all of those baptisms are null and void. They're, they 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 don't stand. And um and and he had to resign. I thought, oh my goodness, what a tragic thing. I, and I was thinking, is there anything in Jewish history like this? Someone who said the wrong word in Kiddushin or made a mistake in Gior in conversions. And then they had 20 years of bad conversions or 20 years of bad marriages and they had to resign. There's nothing like that I could think of. Um, you know, um, and so it, it was such a startling case of how they punished this fellow. Uh, um, and um, in any case, oh, you're on, you're on mute, Rabbi Lerner. Uh, there is a case of a rabbi in near New York who was doing weddings. And then it turned out that his uh, smicha was null and void. Now, the question is, what do you do with the 10,000 people he married and their children? <laughs> yes, okay. Yes. Wait, wait, that, it, but your point is still yeah. correct. Right. So in any case, the, the, the same thing can happen in religion, that people experience some... Um, some um, human errors or corruption and say, religion, this is all worthless, right? That we basically throw out um, everything good because of a few examples. We cannot trust religion or religious teachers um, because they will not tell us the truth or whatever the case is. And so I think part of what it means to be a Jew is to cultivate a filter of how do we decipher good from evil, true from false, as opposed to kind of simple bandwagoning where we distrust everyone and everything because of a few examples. That's very hard. It is very hard to rewire the brain when we've been lied to or when we've been hurt. Take, for example, immigrants that emerge from corrupt countries. I don't mean countries that have a few mistakes, like countries that fundamentally are anti-democratic, that their police force is fundamentally unjust, right? Where there is really no human rights, it is very uh, hard, if impossible, for them to ever kind of regain a sense of trust in government. Um, when you think about Russian Jews who emerged from the former Soviet Union and their orientation towards government, um, you know, or the like, or those who emerged from Central America or Mexico, um, you know, countries where um, corruption is so rampant, it is very hard to ever rebuild that, that fundamental trust. Yes, hi, Cheryl. Good morning. Um, I, I don't know if you covered this and I missed it, but I was wondering how anarchy um, relates to populism because 
anarchy is like an absence of government or taking government into your own hands or govern the people. So is there, how, how does that compare? Awesome, awesome. Um, and then after that, blue, blue 9797, uh, you're, you're Eric, right? Yeah, so Cheryl's point is great. And I'd love to hear from others on this as well. Uh, as to when do populism and anarchism merge? Because populism does not necessarily have to be um, uh, lead, to lead to anarchy. And yet um, it easily can. So here's where I think the, here's where I think the shift happens. And tell me if, if anyone, if you see this differently, that essentially the populist spirit emerges on the campaign trail um, in order to gain power. Right? I am going to reawaken the masses who have been silenced in order to gain my own, my own power. And once I get that power, the question remains, will I maintain that populist ethos? Will I then move towards anarchy or will I then move towards tyranny? Right? And the tyranny says, I got the power, now I'm pushing everyone down. The anarchy says, I got the power, let's crash and burn everything I just got access to, right? The populist ethos in the middle says, I got the power, I'm gonna keep going like I'm still on the campaign trail, right? Because I wanna, because I need that, I need the spirit and energy and money of the masses to keep this going, to keep this going. And so that choice, am I going towards tyranny Towards, towards populism or towards anarchy becomes the crucial next choice. So, so let's look at the Trump moment. Um, uh, um, raise your hands if your video is on and if it's not on, feel free to turn it on. Um, I, I wanna see if you vote for after, after Trump's populism in the election process, if you think he then moved primarily towards tyranny, primarily towards keeping the populist ethos going or primarily towards anarchy. So let's take a quick vote. Okay, so it's interesting. It's interesting. So the, um, the tyranny would be an easy case to make because of the stripping of, of democratic processes, the, the stripping of freedom of press, the stripping of other things that, that keep checks and balances on the system. The populism would also be an easy case to make because of how he continued on the campaign trail. He continued on the campaign trail, continued to excite his base very consistently and, and moved from the press towards social media to have a very grassroots vehicle towards engaging um, that base. And the case towards anarchy could also be made in his attempt to, um, to reduce, in some ways, to reduce the power of government. Now, he wanted to increase his power, but by and large, he disbelieves in government. Now that's not synonymous with anarchy, but anarchy is essentially breaking down systems of regulations. Now, in some cases, this leads to pacifism. Trump didn't launch any wars, right? It's not because he's, he, he's a dove, he's a pacifist. It's because why would we want to spend money on like getting involved in all that stuff, right? It's America first. And so how would, um, so that also kind of falls into the anarchy. We want to deregulate. We want to deregulate everything. Was someone about to jump in there? Yep. Well, yes, what, what about moving towards um, monarchy? And, and then there's monarchy. I put that in the tyranny in, in the tyranny category, right? I was in Chile in 1970. Uh, that was my first pulpit. It lasted six weeks. <laughs> 
I think I have a record for the shortest pulpit in in existence. I uh, the only well, one who was in the Olympics for archery and had a pulpit in Chile. I I have a busy life, um, but with all respect, I watched trucks, flatbed trucks, drive through the wealthy sections of Santiago, and they were telling the people, "If you vote for me, Allende." And, and the uh, communist uh, leftist group, you can have any house here you see, it's yours. So right after the, I was there for the election, <laughs> and that's what did me in, the, the Jews left. I mean, they all left the country, the, those who could. They went up to houses with their guns and said, thank you for watching over our house, you can now leave. And you had then bodies all over the streets. It was incredible. Wow. Wow. But the tyranny that followed was so fast that nobody picked up on it yeah. until it happened. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm going to say something controversial, which is that I am not fundamentally, and we'll go to Eric's point here. I am not fundamentally opposed to monarchy. Whoa! Oh, are you going to throw me out? Okay. Like you can have a just monarchy that is yeah. for the people and you can have an unjust democracy that oppresses the people and where the masses ultimately vote for oppressive policies. Now, of course, all things equal, of course I choose the democracy over the monarchy. But if I was pushed to choose a very just king who takes care of society or an unjust democracy, which would I choose? It's not so clear to me. It's not so clear to me um, what to choose because ultimately what, 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 what I worship is the God of justice who cares about feeding the poor and clothing the naked and, um, and ensuring just laws in, of society. I ultimately care that we achieve those goals. And there's a whole bunch of different political maneuvers that can ultimately get there, regardless of what party or system of government it is. And so I, I pray that one day there'll be a system even better than democracy. I can't think of it what it is yet. Now, I don't think anyone has thought, th thought of what it is yet, um, but some, because democracy has its own risks where the majority rule over the minority and the minority aren't represented. So, and so I, I think as Jews, we wanna just challenge, we wanna challenge all of these, all of these notions of what produces the just society. Okay, my, just before we go to Michael, I see Eric, you've had your hand up. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were citing examples of, you cited the, the, uh, the bishop or archbishop as an example. I remember a uh, big controversy in DC was, uh, there was a rabbi uh, who was arrested for, a felony and he was a renowned rabbi for uh conversions in the dc area and there were thousands of conversions he conducted in the course of his tenure and those were all the big debate whether did those um count even though uh everything was considered kosher and was through a panel so that was a big again big debate there like so I, we all have examples where does everything consider the works all the good work consider null and void even though um the decision is made of outside of one's control. So that's always yeah. a hot debate. Uh, the question the, the question I had was, uh, we, you know, we've talked about populism hierarchy, we've talked about individuals. Uh, one thing I'd like to get, not just your opinion, Rabbi, but other people, uh, people's opinions, uh, is, is there institutions, Jewish or not Jewish, Jewish or not, uh, that is a healthy moderation, tug or, I mean, a, a healthy tug or pull of what is the, the best of populism and the best of hierarchy. That is a, like a role model of what seems to work. Because 
we've talked about what doesn't and we've talked about the challenges and the pros and like pros and cons but i've not heard about um and we even seem talking about individuals like but but i'm not hearing i like to hear what people's thoughts on institutions that seem to be a bro model for for something of the boat so i'll take a first stab and i'd love to open it up to folks yeah and to be sure your first point there eric also emerges not only in um in, in rabbis or, or priests and conversions and baptisms, but the questions of cancel culture. Let's say a brilliant author wrote an amazing book in the 80s, which has been profoundly transformative for all for many, many readers. And then in the 90s became an abuser, right? It, should we still read that book written in the 80s? According to some, of course not. Like cancel the book. Why would we wanna read a book from such a person or amplify that that hurts the victims? Um, and, um, and, and, uh, and, and um, perpetuates a, a culture where we support abusers. According to others, like, yes, I reject everything that person did, but that book is, it has profound wisdom that's helpful to a lot of people, right? So what do we do, what do we do about, uh, about, about um, uh, you know, um, what do we do in cases like that? And, and there's so many similar, similar cases to that as well. To your second point around institutional organizations, I, um, um, how institutions or organization is so is so interesting. Let, let's look at Judaism for a moment. Orthodoxy is very top down. Orthodoxy, there is a rabbi who calls the shots and um, and is the posik. They they you have a question, you ask them, they give you an answer. If you're in Chabad, you don't even have a board of directors, right? The Chabad, the Chabadnik calls all the shots. There's nobody who calls any shots, like literally, not only in terms of halakha and in terms of prayer, but how the whole institution runs. Then look at Reconstructionist Judaism. Reconstructionist Judaism, which recently changed its name to Reconstructing Judaism, um, is, is fundamentally founded in, in a democratic ethos. That uh, one of their famous phrases is halakha has a vote, not a veto, um, but also that the community itself is not rabbi driven. The community itself is democratically driven how decisions are made in the community by the people. So Jewish communities themselves can be oriented in very different ways. Think of the old CEO chart. There's the president and then six vice presidents and then keep going down this, this, you know, this chart you've seen a million times of how everything is structured um, and, and how offices are structured. And think about how some people talk about um, less hierarchical structures today. I, it, they're very interesting. What's effective and efficient um, and what is kind of outdated? And um, there's some very interesting questions that emerge there. Uh, yes, Yehuda. So I have a couple of questions about, and, and in these discussions about populism and, and what's going on, there's uh, the, the root causes. Why does populism rise? What is this coming from? Do they have a legitimate question that the hierarchy is not delivering the economy that serves everybody well and, and meets their needs, that, that addresses the big problems? And I think that that's an important part of the discussion that we're not hearing a lot of. Yeah, great, great. So, so Yehuda wants to um, um, give the benefit of the doubt to many people who will enter populist camps, if I understand correctly, saying, yes, there are some dangerous manifestations, but actually what do those people want? Is that right, Yehuda? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, 
distress in, in different areas not getting addressed and solved. And right. that gives rise to populism. Right. And then the bad forces tap into that and manipulate it. Beautiful. So we would do a great disservice to the masses if we wrote them off as the violent boogeymen who are working to overthrow societal order. And Yehuda makes a great reminder here that human beings are trying to address their human needs. And those human needs get exploited by people who want power on the backs of those people's needs. And so we should not assume that everyone who's riding on the populist train is just a hater, whether they're on the far left or the far right, wherever they are, that they're just a hater of everyone else, as opposed to people trying to legitimately address their needs who get swept up into a movement. Is it, is, am I hearing you right, Yehuda? Yeah, exactly. And so exactly. too, it's like there was a um, there was there was a chief of medicine, something in the government. I, I was listening to an NPR interview recently, and he said uh, he said um, in my evangelical churches, I don't blame all these anti-science people. Like they're just this is what they're being fed all the time. Like actually, like I blame the people who are feeding them this this stuff. So it's very easy just to come to hate the majority of the world you know, or the majority of the country you live in, as opposed to kind of looking at the root causes. So Yehuda, thank you for that. I think that's right. And actually what's interesting is that although Korak's followers are indeed punished, um, we don't hear much about them as to why they kind of join the bandwagon. Um, I, I resent monarchy being called tyranny. Um, I, I, I don't know, it must be an you American resent it thing. as if you're part of the monarchy. I definitely am. Um, I'm a loyal subject of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, and she really, all she does is appear on our money and on our stamps. So, you know, the, the Dutch monarchy, the British monarchy, there's re, they're really figureheads and they add to the, the history and, and the pageantry of government. Um, but they're definitely not tyrants. They have no say in what goes on. Thank you. Oh, and I, I thank you. And I realize, Michael, we're, yeah, we're gonna come to you. I'm sorry, you got skipped over there. That, yeah, and I want to remind folks that we can totally embrace this or totally reject this, but the traditional Jewish dream is to return to monarchy. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Now, now, of course, that dream was, was uh, originated pre-modernity, pre-democratic times, but um, that people who pray from a traditional Sidur are, are looking to restore, um, are lo so restore the Beit HaMidash, restore the animal sacrifices, restore the monarchy, um, and that raises some interesting questions. Now, that that um, monarchy might have a very different shape than what we associate it with. It might be more of a of a of a British monarchy that is kind of more ceremonious, um, ceremonial that rather than um, than authoritative. Nonetheless, there, it, it does remain. Yes, Michael. I think one thing to look at: you pair democracy with a monarch who had significant power was wasn't a long term. The hallmark of democracy is the ability to peacefully pass power on. And that's part of the really big threat that's going on in this country right now, is that this, this is, has been fundamentally challenged by, by Trump and, and his narcissistic approach. In a monarchy, the, the question, this is a monarchy that has real power, that that question of succession means down the road, are you gonna maintain the quality of, of governance and leadership that you have with that particular monarch. Very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you for that. You know, and building off that, I think we can be reminded. We might think of this primarily as a problem in our um, in our Western 
in our Western societies where we have a freedom of movement building um, in, in, in um, democratic societies. But if you look at communism, like communism enters a whole new paradigm where the claim of communist societies, look at China, is equality is the claim of communism, um, <laughs> equality. And, and, and yet you have, um, uh, I, 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 I mean, uh, a complete tyrannical society that is moving every day towards a more oppressive fronts um, in China, which has been spurred by a number of things because of the Trump relationship with China, because of the COVID relationship to China, a number of other things that have emerged. Um, and yet China's cracking down more and more in, in, in many ways. And so even the societies that are really built upon, not upon populist movement building, but upon claims of equality, the facade of equality, also there we see how, how, um, how easily and almost inevitably it leads to forms of oppression. Yes, Rabbi Lerner, you get the last comment. Okay. How do you look at the loop of, of populism on the most local level with people running for a board of ed, school boards, and then they continually dilute what is being offered by the schools. And it increasingly is ignorance, uh, uh, creating more ignorance, and they lose sight of the overall. My only example would be Arizona. I grew up in Phoenix, uh, and, and you're in a great place in Scottsdale. Uh, I grew up in Phoenix. In Arizona, when I went to school, we were required to know the Arizona Constitution, the United States Constitution, and the whole legal formula for running a democratic government. Required. Today, it's an option. <laughs> I, 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 I think the greatest frontier for uh, Jewish social justice work today is, um, is, is an education reform. Rebuilding a culture of critical thinking, rebuilding a culture of sophisticated education, open, uh, inclusive. I think um, that's funded, has the adequate resources, that is paying teachers properly. Um, really a whole range of, of issues in education that have been overlooked. Unfortunately, that has been completely po politicized as well. Friends, next week is debate number 40. And the topic is one state, two states, or no state. We're going to go into one of the most contentious of Jewish debates historically and today. I look forward to seeing you then. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.